Welcome to CISO's Insiders Podcast, powered by GRC Consulting. In this podcast, we'll be interviewing leading CISOs and security leaders in the industry for light, eye-level conversations. Here, they share advice and tips, talk about their biggest accomplishments and failures, favorite drinks, key influencers, and much more. We encourage you to walk away with at least one insight that will help you better yourself or your business. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more content, please check us out on social media. Welcome, everybody. Today I'm speaking with Nicholas uh, Steinman. I uh, hope I pronounced that correctly. Um, and looking at your bio, I see you start off your career as an operations manager, followed by a few stints, uh, landed um, a digital forensic analyst position with Cyber Investigations uh, Kiva Consulting, uh, before moving to your latest position in, in Tetra Defense, which I believe it's a subsidiary of Arctic Wolf. Uh, and today we'll be having like a slightly different episode. We'll be talking mostly about the incident response space. Uh, but if you can step in, introduce yourself, that would be great. Sure, thanks Ben and thanks for having me on. Uh, again, my name is Nick Steinman. I'm a director of insurance alliances at Tetra Defense, an Arctic Wolf company. Um, right now, what I'm doing is maintaining relationships with our cyber insurance carriers and circles, uh, brokers, underwriters, claims teams, privacy attorneys, um, in effort to help an insured through an attack and provide services for them to assess clients' risk. Um, prior to this, I'm still at Tetra Defense, an Arctic Wolf company. I was an associate director of incident response. Um, in this role, I was the first person that a client would speak to um, during a instant response engagement. Um, and it, ultimately, I would assess what they would need and then um, put together a statement of work for them to consider. And then once that, that's all signed up, I would deploy the resources, um, whether it's uh, um, discussions with threat actors, evidence collection, um, and restoration or mediation. Of course, that forensic analysis goes along with it. Um, during that role, I would mainly Leah. Um, liaise, I guess you could say, between the client and, of course, the Tetra team to um, an effort to make sure that we're moving this case along quickly and efficiently. Uh, but that, that's a little bit about me now. Okay, thank you. And just to complete sure. the picture, I always like to start off with a couple of icebreaker questions. Um, if you could share what your favorite drink is and your marital status, that would be excellent. Sure. So most of the time, I'm a, I'm a water drinker throughout the day, still water. Um, but, uh, you know, Thursday, Friday nights, I'm a big fan of an IPA um, and uh, maybe an espresso martini or two occasionally. So that, that's uh, that's a little bit about my drink. Um, marital status, I'm engaged. I'm, uh, I'll be uh, married in November in Miami. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yep. Great city, great vibes and great food. Yeah. So definitely a good location. And you're based out of where in the U.S.? So I'm in New York City. I'm in Manhattan mm -hmm. proper. Um, Tetra Defense, um, we've, we're have we a fully remote shop, but our headquarters is based in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. Okay, got it. Thank yeah. you for that. And, you know, just to set the stage and, you know, talk about a bit of, uh, just provide a bit of context about this space, the incident there. Uh, the incident response versus, you know, security incidents. In your opinion, like what has changed? Maybe nothing has changed, but you, so you'll need to educate me a bit here because I'm not a subject matter expert, of, although I've been in this cybersecurity field for 
probably too long by now, like 22 years, I think. But in your opinion, has something fundamentally changed in the past 15 years? In the past 15 years, I would say a lot of it's, it's really mainly stems from 2017 forward um, when we saw not Petya. Um, of course, where the biggest thing that we're seeing, at least in the rant, um, in security instance space is ransomware. Um, that has kind of materialized into a very large um, part of uh, the investigation sphere from cybersecurity perspectives, in addition to business email compromises um, stemming from something like an Office 365 investigation, maybe Google G Suite or even Exchange servers. Um, where things have kind of materialized on the ransomware space is ransomware being uh, as a service and, of course, access brokers that supply access into vulnerable networks. Um, so what's been interesting is that we're finding that, okay, these access brokers, they maybe conduct some type of external vulnerability scan, find some weakness in someone's network, um, and then they'll end up selling that access um, to a, uh, a particular threat actor. Um, they'll end up buying it. And what's happening is, is that these actors are um, maybe not necessarily those that are fully into the threat actor space, right? Maybe not necessarily a, a nation state, but they're able to buy tools to perform hacks or, or, uh, or conduct ransomware encrypt environments and also steal data out of that environment. So that's, you know, within the past few years, that's what we're seeing most. And that, that's why this, these attacks are becoming a lot more commonplace these days. Yeah, so in other words, they're... The bad guys were able to commoditize the, you know, like hacking techniques and access and, you know, because yep. they're selling it to, to malicious actors, you know, it become, it became more prevalent. Uh, those exactly. Types of attacks. Yeah. I think it started off, you know, when we, when I started my first company, we started off with providing PCI services. And I think back then in it was 2009, I think the talk was that you can actually buy like a, fate, a stolen credit card for anywhere like as low as five bucks back then so yeah. yeah it's definitely not a new thing but yeah it's definitely have this industry have matured uh and you know in your opinion can you name you know what we'll we'll, we'll get to that in in a few moments here but mm -hmm. um yeah let you you know let just uh follow i just wanted to follow a uh, some sort of uh a rational flow um so first off like you know, take us through a, a timeline of uh, um, a common incident. Assume that I'm like I'm. Let's say I'm the CEO of, of of a company that suffers an incident. Where would it meet me, and when would I get notified, and what should I do? Sure. So all companies kind of react differently to a security incident. Um, you know, the, the people treat you know within their own organizations they treat things differently. Um, CEOs will most likely be aware of an attack before my company would be, right? Um, what I'm hearing based on scoping calls with these folks is that ultimately, or at least commonly, an employee will start off reporting an issue um, in the network. Maybe they can't access a specific document. Um, and then eventually it escalates to their IT department. IT will attempt to diagnose the issue and then realize that there's actually a larger problem. Um, from there, that's when it typically will escalate to something like a, a CISO, and then the, that knowledge will eventually travel to the rest of the C-suite, including the CEO. Um, now, when it comes to, and maybe I'll fast forwarding a little bit too much here, but where I see CEOs tend to be on is that initial scoping call, which is when we're figuring out exactly what's happened in that digital environment, um, understanding the size of that network, 
maybe particular servers that they have. Um, so that's the that initial right off the bat scope um, where CEOs will tend to be, uh, where I'll see them again next is when Tetris Defense, an article company, has an idea of how the threat actor was able to get in, right? What particular um, uh, tool that they leveraged in effort to get into the network? Um, was there a, a particular exploit? Once we find that out, we'll see them again. And then, um, of course, around data access and exfiltration. So one of the key things that we're looking for in an investigation is if that hacker, that threat actor, um, was able to touch any documents in the network and copy data out of that network. Um, so we'll usually see, see CEOs around them too, so. Mm -hmm. Okay, and you touched a bit about like, you know, the process. Um, can you take us through like a timeline, like, a, you know, um, a common timeline of an incident and how it's reported uh, throughout the organization, the escalation process and all that? And again, I know you've touched on it briefly. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, it timeline, it, it depends on particularly the size of that environment. Um, the size of the data that they're holding and, and typically around industry type two. Um, in average, from start to finish, an investigation is about six weeks. Um, but what would happen here is once once that client understands that something's wrong in the environment and they loop us in, we'll have that scoping call. Um, we'll figure out exactly what resources that they need. Maybe they need some restoration help, um, uh, a review of particular servers, assessing any backups. But we'll start off by establishing connections into that environment in effort to poke around, start collecting the evidence from the network, um, whether that be a triage or, of course, a forensic image. And then we'll move forward into maybe possibly discussing uh, or reaching out to the attacker if that is needed, um, in addition to um, reviewing that forensic evidence, too. Um, on average, that restoration piece, very contingent upon what's going on in that network, what types of servers that they have, what type of data that they have. But um, typically, we're seeing that the threat actors like to go after file servers in effort for that access and exfiltration. They'll end up targeting domain controllers and um, Microsoft Exchange servers. So all in all, I would say that um, those are our key focuses when we first get in. But during this time, uh, we're going to ask these um, our clients of ours to list what exactly is a priority in their environment that needs to be uh, reviewed quickly and brought back up to health as fast as possible. So we'll have that list from, from the client that says, okay, we need X, Y, and Z server up and running as quickly as possible. So we'll start get to, getting to work on that restoration services there. Um, and then of course, work our way down that list. But average about six, six weeks for these investigations. Mm-hmm. Okay, so an average of six weeks. And like in in your opinion, I'm not sure if you have like any, you know, specific statistics about it, but like what would be the number one cause for most incidents that you that that you that you become aware of? Sure. So we're seeing, and it's funny, most people in the space saying that it's open RDP, which is true, um, or or a, a phishing attack. Now, if you include um, business email compromises, which is different from ransomware. Yes, phishing is is a huge part of uh, that that initial point of entry, that root point of compromise. Um, but for ransomware in specific, we're actually seeing external vulnerabilities being the predominant method of, of intrusion from an attacker. Um, these are things like unpatched VPNs, um, unpatched exchange servers, which that that tends to be number one, the exchange server, um, and uh, and firewalls. Um, what's interesting is that if you're not keeping up with the patch and cadence, that's that's usually how these threat actors are coming in, at least what we've been seeing within the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. 
And I know you mentioned fission as one of the vectors. Do you think uh, do you think it plays an important part of that, or uh, like an unpatched environment will would be sufficient, like a sufficient ground for attack? The unpatched environment is the predominant method of intrusion for ransomware in specific. Um, you know, if, again, BECs that if you factor in both of those, that that tends to skew that number. But we're seeing majority of our cases tend to be from unpatched um, exchange servers and VPNs. What's unique here is that um, a lot of people thought it was the other way around. And of course, RDP, um, remote desktop protocol port 3389 tends to be another big thing uh, or method of intrusion after um, and using brute force in combination of that, but it's mainly the uh, the external vulnerabilities. What's what we're finding is a lot of these tools are available for free. I, I can conduct an external scan right now quite quickly um, mm -hmm. on majority of systems in, in uh, across the country, across the globe, and it'll line up exactly what where that weakness is. And that's exactly what these threat actors are exploiting, these free tools that are available for their, for, for their own use. Um, problem is they're just not using it ethically. Got it. Do you have any statistics that you can share potentially about the threat actors and who they are actually? So it, it, it depends on who you're speaking with. I, I would say for the most part, we're seeing that a lot of these connections are based in Eastern Europe. Now I can't get into granularities of what specific country because frankly, most of us don't really know. Uh, we think they're all from the Eastern European region. Um, when it comes to business email compromises, it looks like they're coming from Africa. Um, but that, that again, you know, with the obscurities with using something like um, a VPN, it, it's, it's hard to tell. Um, sometimes a, a particular tool that they're using will be a dead giveaway, but it's that's few and far between. Yeah. Where does China, North Korea, and Iran stand on, on this? Do you see them in the statistics as well? Um, we, we have seen some IP addresses that resolve to those nations. Um, what's interesting is that um, they're not necessarily performing any ransomware attacks. If anything, we may see that IP addresses were resolved back to an APT group located in that region. Um, and that's that's less so on the encryption and demand, you know, ransom demand space, but more so on probably a data exfiltration um, yeah. type of thing. Um, that said, you know, where we tend to be concerned is not necessarily nation states, but it's more so on particular organizations because they're treating themselves like a business. Um, we've seen there was a couple months ago a, uh, a threat actor variant. Um, they ended up, uh, you know, given the Russia-Ukraine conflict, I guess there were some folks living in Russia, some folks living in Ukraine. Um, that particular variant took a stance on, on what's going on in the world, and that the Ukrainians ended up leaking a, a lot of documentation on them. And there was actually a, a lot of learning that, uh, that we were able to do from that information. So we found out that these folks are treating it exactly like a business, right? They, while there may be criminals, there is an HR department, there's a finance department. Um, it, it, it's quite interesting what we were able to learn out of that information that ended up being leaked. Well, sounds super interesting. And how does an organization will go about preparing for, you know, cybersecurity incidents and, uh, and those types of attacks? Sure. Well, when it comes to, well, I guess there, you could take it two ways. One is what to do before an attack happens at all. And then what to do when you realize that you've experienced attack uh, an attack. So 
um, from a proactive standpoint, um, ensuring that you enforce multi-factor authentication on uh, all accounts, whether that's email, that's VPN, um, regularly test backups, be sure to keep them off domain, um, have an instant response plan, that's key. Uh, review it every quarter, make sure that your um, employee contact information for key employees are documented and, and regularly changed when someone is, you know, there's, there's a, a change in guard. Um, no normal in your environment. What apps are you using? Uh, where are you storing sensitive data, such as personally identifiable information, protected health information, and intellectual property? Um, and of course, I'd also say introduce the principle of least privilege um, in effort to make sure that uh, you're limiting the amount of people with domain access and, um, and, of course, deleting accounts that are, you know, for employees that are no longer there. Um, so that's for the proactive side, but from a um, what to do when you've just realized that you've experienced an attack. Um, the big things I would say is preserve all evidence. Obviously, I, you know, I'm seeing that um, business interruption is a, a big thing for a lot of companies. Um, you know, most, most companies know exactly how much money that they're losing in a day when they're unable to operate. Um, but the key here is to preserve all evidence. Um, and we, that's for a few reasons. The, but the top one is being if, if you end up clearing that evidence away, wiping it, um, my firm won't be able to tell you how the threat actor was able to get in in the first place. So if you, you know, wipe and restore, maybe from a backup, that vulnerability is most likely there already from that backup. So be sure to preserve that evidence. Um, I would also recommend don't turn off any devices. Um, just let them um, disconnect them from the local area network and network um, and internet. Um, and of course, don't engage any attackers right off the bat. There's a lot of nuance and communications when you're speaking with these folks. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask a follow-up question on this regarding sure. to compliance. Do you feel compliance has, uh, has improved some of the resiliency of some of your customers? In other words, you feel that like from what you're seeing, do you think that it happens less or to a lesser extent with uh, highly regulated uh, customers rather than those who are not regulated? Yes and no. Um, compliance is, is extremely important. It's It highlights the best practices in the industry that need to take place. Uh, maybe cyber hygiene projects are, are extremely important to improve your security posture. Um, if you're abiding by these things, um, CMMC, which of course is DLD, um, all of these things are extremely important to take seriously and, and implement as much as possible. Um, even if just knowing where you're storing data, um, those will help you outline and put together that plan and, and a little bit of knowledge around your IT infrastructure. Um, where I, I see is that a lot of so, so some of these types of things will encourage a pen test. That's where I kind of think, well, um, that could maybe be changed on a uh, on a thought process in the cybersecurity industry, because in my opinion, a, uh, a penetration test is as good as the day that it was complete. Um, you know, given that we're seeing zero day attacks, we're seeing um, external vulnerabilities being these root point of compromises, that initial point of entry. That's that's dynamic, right? That can change, um, you know, from a couple weeks, right? If your if your stuff is out of date. There's, there's a vulnerability that's in your network. So I, I think while I encourage people to follow these guidelines, um, be sure to just be dynamic and make sure that you're updating and patching your network as much as possible. Yeah. And again, just to you know, to, to counter that, <laughs> I just wanna just wanted to mention that obviously, like sure. you know, penetration tests 
testing is obviously like a single requirement for most compliance frameworks, but so it's patching, right? It doesn't, yeah. it's not do this or that. You should actually do both. But, uh, and, and yeah, but, but I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm totally in agreement with you that, you know, if like for zero day attacks, the, I mean, the, the, the threat vectors, I mean, the way to counter that is with having uh, a good and efficient patch management program, obviously, because otherwise, you know, a pen test that was conducted three months ago will not protect you from, you know, the next zero day, obviously. Right. Uh, and, and of course, that goes without saying, I, I wouldn't discourage someone from having a pen test there. They're extremely important to have, right? It's helping you understand the vulnerabilities in your environment, and um, knowing the layers of your environment, too. All of these things are extremely important to understand. So, you know, I, I would never discourage a pen test. But, you know, you, you, you get one three months ago um, and of yeah. course, a, a vulnerability is there. It's, you of know, course. a new one's there. It's going to change things. Yeah, of course. Um what so why does it seem in your opinion at least i mean that's that's the i think that's the notion right now that it seems that the number of incidents is increasing in the past few years uh so a do you think that's true and b if so what's the reason for that i do think it's true um again i, I again i do not think this is nation state but more so as ransomware as a service and access brokers like i touched on a little earlier um, ransomware as a service, basically, you don't have to be that nerd genius to launch an attack anymore. Um, you're simply able to buy all the tools that you need to launch an attack yourself. And it's basically like buying a kit. So that, that's the first one. The other thing that I would see is access brokers. Um, these are the ones, these are the folks that are actually scanning for vulnerabilities and then will sell that vulnerability or that known vulnerability in that network um, to that ransomware as a service user, right? Um, those are those are one of the predominant reasons why we're seeing an uptake in these cases. Um, it's, it's as simple as that, right? Um, I'm not seeing any evidence of people targeting specific industries, right? Not targeting manufacturing in specific. It's just, they're looking for weaknesses and they're going to take advantage of that. And that's where that, that access broker is definitely coming into play. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Um, because, you know, what you're saying basically is that, you know you're and i think you've mentioned that that these malicious hackers you know they they act as companies they perceive themselves as, as organizations they have hr right. and all that uh but we we are seeing like different types of attacks like you know in my opinion and maybe i'm i'm wrong here but wouldn't you say that an attack like what happened with SolarWinds was different than you know with equifax and even tjmax going back for like you know, a couple of decades uh, that's yes and no. I mean, of course, solar winds does a lot more damage because it's it's able to trickle down, right? Something like you could say it too. Um, you know, Equifax is, is targeted to a specific company where they're looking for social security numbers in effort to be leveraged, sold, and distributed and, and, and used however someone wants to serve sort of C-spin on the dark web. Um, in all actuality, though, I mean, there's, there's a yes and no here, right? Uh, in some regards, I also don't think they differ at all. Um, some of these things, right? Um, things like Equifax, there were exfiltration events where an entity was siphoning information out of the networks, um, whether that's social security numbers, credit card numbers, healthcare data, um, all that information can be gathered and used against that end victim. Uh, but that said, you know, smaller attacks um, for ransomware, and um, it's more likely that these groups don't really have affiliations with larger larger governments or, or anything like that they're just there for a financial incentive um, 
And that's, mm -hmm. that's what we tend to see. Mm -hmm. and, and and that, like um, what you just said, do you think that's, uh, is that something that could be proven? Like, you know, the fact that they're not sponsored by governments, that these are like uh, private organizations, in your opinion, then? It, it, it all depends on the evidence, right? We, you know, something like Evil Core, um, that's something that's a, a an OFAC sanctioned entity where uh, we're not allowed to facilitate a payment for them. And we haven't really seen cases from them um, in a while. Um, if we are able to prove it, that it ties back to a, uh, a government that uh, of course needs to be alerted to the Office of Foreign Assets and Control, which is under the Department of Treasury. But um, for the most part, they're, they're few and far between. Um, together as, a, as an industry, we're not making any payments to Conti. Um, that's another ransom group, but if, if the evidence isn't there, it's um, it, it depends on ultimately what that business that has been impacted there um, and their privacy attorney will, will say, right? Tetra Defense and Arctic Wolf Company wants to ensure that we're really not taking a position. We typically recommend that we don't facilitate a ransom payment, um, but that ultimately boils down to that client's needs and the advice from, from their privacy attorney. Mm -hmm. And we did touch a bit about you know governments that are considered like powerhouses in in, in the hacking space we mentioned mm -hmm. you know russia china iran and north korea um mm -hmm. and and i think from if i'm able to to discern from what you just from what you said is that eastern europe is mostly for like the objective is financial gain and some of these and and that could be you know probably as you said it might not be tied back into like you know specific government but these other nation states yours you you mentioned that that was the objective was more around data exfiltration um is it possible or in your opinion do you think there are like ongoing threats and data exfiltration that companies just don't know about then because they're not asking for money Yes and no. Um, there's been a, a, a couple cases that I've seen um, where the client did not know anything was happening. And of course, um, state that was monitoring the, the internet traffic noticed that there was a, a, a malicious IP connecting to their environment. Um, so the, the actual company did not know about it. We ended up exploring it. Um, and uh, we actually ended up learning a lot. They tend to be a lot more stealthier, or at least these APT groups. Um, but it's it's ultimately they they tend to be the hardest ones to to crack. But uh, that's something that we we constantly do, and uh, at least at at minimum help this help that particular client harden their environment moving forward, so something like that doesn't happen again. Whether that's introduced something like EDR, or of course multi-factor authentication as well. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe for uh, the purpose of educating some of our listeners, maybe we can talk a bit about the difference between a single hack or an, an APT, like an advanced persistent threat that might reside in your network. Maybe you can provide some clarity about that. Well, when it comes to a threat actor group, right, there's there's two different kinds. One that are that are going in, they're a little bit more stealthy. Um, the IP addresses are a little harder to find, but um, that's, that's really important where my knowledge ends for, for APT groups. Um, the, the threat actors that are actually causing encryption events and charging money, um, they're a little bit more boilerplate. They're a little bit more commonplace too. Um, but uh, for the most part, it's a simple organization, of course, a group of criminals, but um, they're the ones that are actually doing the most damage right now. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
um, and, and thank you about that. Um, so is it possible, and I know you can't divulge any, you know, sensitive information about any one of your customers, but do you think sure. you can run us through like a, a case study, maybe a redacted one? Yeah, um, so I would think the first one that comes to mind is maybe a case where I had it a couple of months ago where the client actually had endpoint detection and response tools in place, but they didn't have a SOC or a security operations center behind them. Um, so what ended up happening is that despite having this enhanced tool to stop something like this, no one was monitoring these alerts, um, which of course eventually led to an exfiltration event and an, and an encryption event. Um, it was a medium-sized company, and uh, when we got there, we actually found out that there were some viable backups um, that we were able to leverage, but for the most part, um, some, most of the network needed the decryption tool from the threat actor. Um, when that happened, we found out that the root point of compromise, that initial point of entry, was from their exchange server, um, and from which they laterally moved to the domain controllers and then moved over to the file server for them to exfiltrate or, or copy any data out of that network. Um, that was what we found out what ended up happening here. Um, but, you know, the restoration process, um, what we ended up having to do is um, triage all the devices in the network, um, identify any indicators of compromise, those IP addresses, those malicious tools that were left behind, or maybe even traces of them. Um, and then, of course, uh, being able to patch that exchange server, which which can be a long time. And, and of course, verifying that nothing else was exfiltrated from the environment, especially when the exchange server was that root point of entry. So uh, making sure that their emails were safe and hasn't been wasn't touched or accessed. It was just limited to that particular file server. Um, but that ended up being a, a very interesting one because um, this case ended up being a, uh, a black cat variant. So and this is one of, one of the new ones. Black Hat is a ransomware group that's been around since November 2021. Um, and they were one of the few cases that I've seen where if you, in effort to entice or force that particular client to pay, um, they would DDoS or basically in, in, in a nutshell, um, overloading their, their, their router so that they were unable to actually access the internet and um, and they did that for quite a number of days. Um, that was, that was a very interesting one, but what ended up happening is that they stopped DDoSing. We were able to use that decryption tool to get most of their service back up to health. And of course, close all the holes from, from an exchange server perspective. Mm -hmm. And in respect to that specific case study, in your opinion, mm -hmm. what could they have done better? Two things. First is keeping up with that patch cadence as mentioned. So patching that exchange server as soon as that patch is available. The other thing that I'd recommend for, for exchange is running Microsoft safety scanner after every time you patch it. Um, what it's going to do is remove any web shells, um, which is how the threat actors or what the threat actor is leveraging to, to move even further into that network. So running Microsoft safety scanner and possibly changing passwords too, but that's more of a after, after an incident. Um, the other thing that I would say is um, have a SOC or a security operations center behind your endpoint detection and response tools um, that are monitoring 24 seven. Um, so the beauty of them is that you're able to go on vacation and not deal with any alerts, right? Your IT department, they're the ones that are actually monitoring and can take action and remediate whatever is going on in that network. Um, so that, that, that's a big thing that I, that I would see is that SOC monitoring and of course um, regularly patching.
And in your experience, do you usually see in-house SOC teams and, and, and the actual SOC, or is it like outsourced to a third party? So if you have EDR in the environment, um, it's most likely just the IT team that's internal that is monitoring this. Um, and that's why all these alerts tend to be ignored. Um, if it's external, which is what I would encourage, um, they're the ones that are keeping up on it, keeping abreast of uh, uh, what's going on in the environment. And of course, reporting that information to that particular client of theirs. Um, so when we do see an incident that's uh, with, with EDR in there, that's it's usually because of, you know, it was missed by by an internal department. Mm -hmm. And I know we've spoken a bit about, uh, you know, uh, specific governments and government entities and all that. But it seems that the U.S. government has, has been taking uh, cyber threats very seriously in the past few years. You know, they mm -hmm. came out with that, forgot the name, but like a White House, uh, some kind of a white paper uh, produced by the White House. And they also came out with CMMC with the intent, with the, sure. you know, with the objective of basically securing the U.S. supply chain. Any thoughts on that? Like, what would that do? How would that change the industry? In your opinion, will will that help? Um, I, I think so. I mean, just implementing these best practices or standards, particularly with the, the Department of Defense, right? Keeping, make sure a minimum security level in these environments, it's, it's extremely important. Um it, it's definitely going to help um, just to make sure that people are staying hard. Now, of course, um, a lot of this is up to that particular uh, company to implement and actually take action on, right? Um, if you're recommending spe uh, specific things are being done for that environment, that's that's really all they can do, right? That company needs to take the action. Yeah, no, no. I, I think I think the question: Will they enforce it or not? Because you know the fact that they will tell them, "Look, this is what you need to do," but it, you know it's not a carrot and a stick type of situation, so they might not, you know, just do it. So uh, sure. Think, well, yeah. I I would think from at least a government perspective, and again, I, I I'm not in government, but I, I would assume concern, you know, reviewing those checks um, to make sure that things like. Uh, cybersecurity maturity model certification is, you know, whatever that needs to be done for them for the cyber hygiene projects are being vetted and verified. Um, if you're not taking part of that, you're probably not going to be a DOD to contractor for long. Um, that's ultimately from, from my perspective, um, how they implement that process and that checks and balances from the governmental perspective. That's um, not, not really my wheelhouse, but you know, what Got I it. think there. Okay. And I know, uh, you know, you mentioned that in your experience, the majority of uh, hacking groups are private, but like in your, in your opinion, in those cases where an organization is backed by a government, do you think a private organization here in the U.S. has anything they can actually do to protect themselves, you know, against a government that's after them? Well, I mean, of course, the best practice are, of course, implementing EDR and, and of course, uh, enabling MFA. Um, when it comes to governments being involved, I mean, it's tricky. Uh, it, it's really the best way that I could describe it. it it's um, obviously, you know, if you're seeing something, law enforcement is most likely going to need to be involved and, and take go forward that way. Um, but our investigations are showing that legitimate tools are being used in everyday computing. Um, and ethical hacking tools are being used too by the threat actors. So, you know, if you're taking action on a specific entity, um, 
you know, I guess, you know, what I'm trying to say here is that these companies need to make sure that they're keeping up with their, you know, it's their responsibility to maintain their own security. Um, depending on what needs to be involved or any actions taken after that, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a crapshoot. No one, you know, not, not entirely sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think this is still a point uh, for future debate. Uh, we'll, you know, yeah. we'll have to wait and see <laughs> how this plays out. Uh, okay, great. So Nick, uh, you know, to be honest, uh, this has been super interesting to me. As I, as I mentioned, I'm not a super, uh, you know, a subject matter expert on incident response and all that. Um, and I, frankly, I ran out of questions. So do you have any, <laughs> do you have any final notes, anything else you wanted to, you know, put out there? I would just kind of reiterate what needs to happen if you do experience a security incident um, and it boils down to just taking action, right? Immediately. So the things that I would recommend if your company is impacted by something like ransomware um, is first and foremost, preserve all evidence. Do not wipe or restore any impacted systems unless you're collecting a forensic image first. Um, don't turn off your devices, um, but sever that connection from the internet and local area network. Um, that way, if uh, when that happens, I, the reason why I recommend that is if an exfiltration is happening in process, you're able to cut that. Um, the other thing is do not engage or speak with an attacker, um, whether that's by phone or email or any other means. Um, let, let your professional handle that. And of course, um, the one thing that I would also recommend doing is changing passwords. Um, that's emails, administrator accounts, cloud accounts, VPN. Um, any type of remote connectivity and be sure to change those passwords. Um, and the other thing that I would recommend is isolate the backups, right? You want to make sure that you're keeping the fire truck far away enough from the burning house to ensure that they are, that they are able to save the day. <laughs> mm -hmm. Good, good uh, pieces of advice. Thank you for that. And with that, I, uh, I mean, I can only thank you for your time. Uh, I know it's a Friday. I know it's late for you. And <laughs> hopefully we'll get some rest during the weekend. Uh, and thank you again. This has been educational for me. I enjoyed the talk today. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. Happy to, happy to be on. Thank you.